Hi, and welcome to BTS Podcast. BTS stands for Behind the Scenes. This is your host, Lene Cook, and on BTS Podcast, I talk to people about what they do, how they do it, growth, personal relationship management, and so much more. This episode is with Dr. Brian Keating, and it was recorded on the last day of San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Quick shout out to Tumblr. Without Tumblr, I would not have been at Comic-Con, which means that this podcast would not have happened, and I'm so grateful that it did. Dr. Brian Keating is a cosmologist. He is the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at UCSD, director at the Simmons Observatory, and author of the book Losing the Nobel Prize, which, as you may have guessed, means that he was also eligible for a Nobel Prize, and spoiler alert, he did not win it. We discuss how he does what he does, which includes writing, parenting, mentorship, being a professor, what it means to be in academia, share academic research, and a ton more. I learned a lot in this conversation. I learned why nickels have ridges and pennies do not. And I highly recommend picking up his book, Losing the Nobel Prize. There's a link to purchase the book in the description of this episode. It's now available in paperback, freshly announced in September of 2019. In addition to hardback and as an audiobook, I have the hardback edition and an audiobook. This is one that I definitely recommend picking up in a physical form and reading. It's really, really great. And there's some, uh, I don't know, it's just one of those things that I find there are certain books I get more out of in physical form. And though the audiobook is great and you'll still get the point of it, I did get a lot from reading the physical book. Losing the Nobel Prize trails the history of the esteemed award and the ways in which it should be reconsidered to have a more positive impact on progress as a whole and is a much lighter read than you may expect from an astrophysicist. I learned a ton from the book and highly recommend picking it up. In my opinion, it's also part of this cultural shift that I've been noticing for a while where experts across a variety of fields are vocalizing their concerns about the ways that aspects of progress are treated in like a competition type way rather than focusing on progress in large. And so individuals are under this immense pressure of a winning or losing dichotomy, which is completely unfair. On a societal level, we glorify individual people rather than overall progress. So when you think about scientific discoveries, how much further could we be if everyone shared information and wasn't rewarded based on their individual work? In our conversation, we touch on this idea. The book absolutely digs deep into this concept and sort of the very big winning or losing dichotomy of the Nobel Prize. Anyways, just to reiterate, sort of the danger of this norm is that it really discourages collaboration, incrementalism, which I'm a huge believer in, the importance of the value of efficacy, and most importantly, has a negative impact on progress, which affects all of us. Anyways, I would greatly appreciate your support of this podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash BTS podcast and support on a monthly basis. And if you don't want to make that commitment and instead want to enjoy a massage, a great hotel stay, or grocery delivery please do use my promo codes for the following services. I love Soothe for in-home massages. I love the sports massage. You can also book couple massages. You can choose the gender of your massage therapist if you're more comfortable with a man or a woman. Whatever works for you, they come to where you are, bring the table and everything. You can use code LZLRZ to save on your first Soothe massage. Also for hotels, I love Hotels Tonight. I've used it for years around the world. Their point system is excellent and I save more on that than any other travel booking system that I have points on. So use Hotel Tonight. My code is LCOOK61. The hotels are gorgeous. They have an excellent selection and I'm a huge fan. And shout out to Instacart. I saved probably over 100 hours. They have a cool little ticker in there that lets you know how much time you've saved. But 
I've saved a ton of time by not going to the grocery store, grocery shopping, and then coming home. Um, I love Instacart. You can use LCook5142 at checkout on your first order to save. It is awesome and they have a wide variety of stores around your area, which I love. Um, this is also a great way if you don't want to give more money to the giant of Amazon, which I'm not going to lie, I'm still an Amazon Prime member, but I just think it's important to diversify where we spend our dollars a little bit. So use Instacart for grocery delivery in Seattle. I get groceries from PCC in LA. I get them from Lassen's or Mother's if I'm in Orange County, but give it a shot. It's lovely. And if worse comes to worse, at least you did not have to venture out into the wild or out of your house to get groceries. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate, review. Enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook, and I am very excited to be on the UCSD campus today with Brian Keating, who could also go by Dr. Brian Keating, but uh, he likes to be more human and go by <laughs> Brian Keating, which I appreciate. He is uh, the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at UCSD. He has, do you host the podcast here? Yeah, I'm the founder of the podcast for the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, for which I am also the co-director of mm -hmm. this, or associate director now, mm -hmm. uh, of this wonderful center that maybe we'll get into, which explores kind of the boundaries between arts, humanities, science, and technology, and especially with the realm of science fiction, and how we can learn from possible um, interstices between these different fields about the boundaries of human imagination and how to encourage that. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll ask you about annihilation later in this okay. conversation. All right. Potentially. Well, to a physicist, that could take us in many different directions. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, and you are also the author of a book called Losing the Nobel Prize, mm -hmm. which uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you're not familiar with his work, you should definitely look up other conversations with him online. You did a talk at Google that I found really helpful in just preparing me for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And in, in fact, uh, made me like even more excited than I already was <laughs> because I was like, oh good, this is the exact kind of stuff I want to dig yeah, into. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm excited to dive in. Thank yeah. you so much for being on. That's my pleasure. Thank you for coming um, over to campus. Yeah, I'm so glad. So I actually found out about Brian through press releases because you were on a Comic-Con panel. Yes, I was. That's right. How did that go? It was really fascinating. You know, it was late Saturday night, um, mm -hmm. the last, you know, second, the last full night of the, of the convention and there were a couple hundred people that showed up it happened to be it was the 50th anniversary of the apollo 11 moon landing and so we were there to review the past year in space but and all things astronomical with my friend and professor colleague uh, professor shelley wright and a colleague of mine dr andrew friedman who both work with me here in the center for astrophysics and space sciences we reviewed all the greatest and latest discoveries in the past year and then we talked about the past and the, the grand past that culminated with the landing on the moon, which which uh, is already 50 years down the down in history now. So it was quite amazing to see so many people coming out to Comic Con to you know explore science fact, as I call it, not just science fiction. Totally, yeah. That's uh, it has been quite a big subject lately, and there were uh, a friend sent me tickets to like an Apollo 11 event that up, I think at the Hollywood Bowl or something, yeah. mm -hmm. which looked really cool. Um, and then how, how did that come about for the Comic-Con panel? How did you, so, did you guys submit for that or how does that work? Yeah, so well, uh, they typically ask us to do a panel or a couple panels from UCSD every year mm -hmm. at Comic-Con. Last year I was really 
fortunate to be on on the stage with the MythBusters. So oh, fun. yeah, Carrie Byron and and all those great uh, folks on the MythBusters. Was group. Adam Savage on that? He was not. Okay, no. so yeah, they apparently think so. have been some kind of you know. There's been a divide. Yes, there's been a divide. <laughs> some are busted, some are not. Uh, I didn't get into that with them. <laughs> yeah, uh, better but it not was to. Like, um, yeah, so it was a it was a really fun panel with the core group of folks, not the. Not the uh, guy with the mustache or Adam Savage. Right. Uh, I've still yet to meet them, but uh, but it was wonderful. There were a couple thousand people at that one oh, last I'm year. Oh, sure. And then uh, I typically do some kind of review about uh, about astronomy or latest and greatest discoveries or future of say data visualization. We're getting into artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, virtual reality is becoming very big, and in, in the mm -hmm. actual hard sciences, not just science fiction. And um, and then this year, a bunch of my colleagues run a separate panel. Uh, these are theoretical physicists that were talking about wormholes and warp drives and the putting more science into science fiction. And then I have, uh, last but not least, several of my postdocs who are people that have already obtained their PhD in astrophysics, in this case, who come to work with me. And we collaborate together on projects while they come up with their own ideas for how science should be conducted once they become a professor, hopefully at some point in the future. So they've been asked to be on panels, what's called the, uh, the League of Extraordinary Scientists and Engineers. And there's, uh, there's a panel going on today. We're recording it on the Sunday of Comic-Con. So it's, it's really fun. It's a great resource that we have here in San Diego. And best of all, I get free passes to Comic-Con every year. Yeah, definitely. That's Comic-Con directly reach out to you, or is it another coordinator of... Like how do, I didn't know if it was like there was a larger, a different company organizing. Yeah, the so there's another, uh, there's another organization that puts on a, a parallel event. There's a lot, of, as you know, there are a lot of parallel events that, go, that take place. One from Amazon, one from Fox, you know, et cetera, et cetera, FX. And there's one, uh, a special one that's held every year. It's called Future Tech Live. Mm. And that's at the Omni Hotel next door to the convention center. And every year we put on, uh, we is a, a friend of mine who is uh, named Stuart Volkow, who also works here with me in the Arthur C. Clarke Center. And he uh, is very tightly connected with, say, Hollywood studios that are doing things with visualization in media. So IMAX, 3D, augmented reality. And every year we have some kind of a, a side event that goes on there in parallel at the Omni Hotel. And this year my colleague, Professor Shelley Wright, she brought this pop-up planetarium there. And oh, so cool. she was doing star parties for the last four or five nights with UCSD undergraduates and graduate students helping her out. And just the crowds were going crazy because there's no real, there is a planetarium in San Diego at the Fleet Museum, which I'm also affiliated with, which is wonderful. But to have it right next to Comic-Con where you can actually talk to a real live scientist anytime you want during the show. Yeah. It really is a wonderful synergy for the, for the university and for Comic-Con, I would believe. Yeah, that's really fun. Yeah. That's, I wish I would have known about that sooner. I would have loved Come to Come next year and you're back next year. Yeah. yeah we'll, definitely, we'll definitely hook you up. Yeah, I was really excited. Uh, I was at Comic-Con with Tumblr this year, mm -hmm. and they, on the calendar, I was thrilled to see, like, our first agenda item on Friday was to go to the NASA booth, mm -hmm. uh, which was great, and they had a HoloLens there, and you could walk on Mars with the imagery captured from the Mars rover. Oh, I don't know wow. if you saw that at I've all. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. And then they also had, with an Oculus, I believe, they had... It set up so that you could have like a proper one-to-one -one view of, uh, and I'm spacing mm -hmm. on on it exactly, but it was basically a launch. Yeah. Um, oh wow. And so the the video slowly, luckily, so you didn't get sick. The video slowly <laughs> like took you up to the top of it. You know, oh, um, wow. you could look inside, see the uh, like astronauts like where ready. Where the crew would be, right? Where the crew yeah. would, uh -huh. And they had like right. um, simulated like crew people there. Uh -huh. 
and then you went back down and then you watched the launch and oh, cool. um, I actually do, are you familiar with NASA social I know yeah a little okay bit about it yeah so uh, I went to the ISAT 2 launch through NASA social oh wow but then the line was so insane I didn't I couldn't make it on the actual <laughs> shuttle to go to the launch and it was super foggy <laughs> oh so <my> like <laughs> but even just the sound of it was so amazing yeah and so um, yeah so I was really excited to see a NASA and like JPL presence there yeah and that they had really great sort of experience type uh, things because I think it's that's a really hard thing yeah. to have materials for. That's what we're trying to do, especially here. So one of the people that wasn't here is my colleague. He's actually the director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center. His name is uh, Eric Veery, and he's MD, PhD. And he's involved with this uh, uh, a mission that's being launched into space right now into microgravity called the Boards mission, which is like brain organoids. They're sending up like brain cells essentially into space and seeing how they divide and, and do their thing in zero gravity and see what implications that might have for diseases like autism and, and, um, and Parkinson's and things like that. Right. Perhaps it could have some relevancy to, to, you know, affairs here on earth, but doing this through in the social, in the social way, that's also hoping to connect people via these different, means that are not traditional scientific you know it's very it's very improbable that you're going to get a non-scientist interested in science using the tools that scientists use to communicate with each other which is right. conferences and papers and citations totally. and things like that so looking at other ways of presenting research to the public not only because they pay our salaries i mean literally here i'm a state employee you know i work uh, mm -hmm. work for you know gavin newsom at some level uh, and and in that in that sense we have an obligation i feel as uh, tax you know to the taxpayers who support us but beyond that that you know to be a good scientist is also to be a good citizen and to share the excitement and the awe and the passion that you have for science with the general public to me it's a it's a privilege and it's I find it very easy to do, and that's why I always, you know, say yes to these things. My wife says I should say no to more of them because I, you know, go, go get off one plane and go on another plane. Uh, uh, but it's so much fun; it's hard to say no to. Yeah, and it really—I mean—and I had a friend of mine, Peter Neff. He was on the podcast, and he is an earth scientist. And I think less than a week after we recorded, he ended, he was in Antarctica for like mm -hmm. six months. Yeah, and. We were talking about just the responsibility of academics to communicate that to the broader broader public, and um, and that was one thing that really uh, attracted me to bringing you on the podcast was that you talk about something that I think about a lot, and it's how um, how sort of news and media are incentivized to share research, and then it's not that exciting to update it when things have changed, and then how do you do that on a grander, on like a larger level, and yeah. then that sort of way of news cycles and, and awards and all of that really does not lend itself to valuing incrementalism. And I think there's been some meaningful work done yeah. there recently. Um, Angela Duckworth's research really shows a lot about like, hey, success isn't always fun. Like one of my favorite things, I don't know if you, have you read Grit? No. Okay, so um, she, she shared a quote from an Olympian who people asked like, oh, so you must, he's an Olympic swimmer. Right. And I think they asked him like, oh, like how do you, something about like training and like, do you love or whatever? And he was right. like, I think what he said was like, do I like getting up at six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, whatever, plunging into an ice cold <laughs> pool? No, but I like winning. Yeah. Right. 
And so we we miss that whole part of what it takes to be really good at something and do meaningful work. Mm -hmm. And when all you see in the public eye is the end result, the end, right? And everything sort of swept under the rug. Exactly. It makes yeah. it really unattainable. Yeah. So that's a big theme of my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which is about kind of what it's like to aspire to greatness and achieve greatness and actually make a contribution that no human being had ever done on Earth. And aspire in the beginning of my career, unabashedly, I say it, you know, it's embarrassing in some sense, but, you know, I really wanted to understand what the birth of the universe was like, but I had an ulterior motive, which is that I wanted to kind of show up my dad, who was also a great scientist, and uh, do the one thing that he never got to do, which is to win a Nobel Prize, mm -hmm. and really get that cemented in my career as a, as a mark of of inarguable greatness that mm -hmm. had uh, only been conferred on a couple hundred human beings since the beginning of time, right? So it set up this, this kind of dichotomy that winning was everything, and that even coming in second, you know, or even 10th or 100th, that that was not even worth the, the participation. And throughout the journey that I take in the book, and I take readers along for the ride, it doesn't matter if it's a scientist aspiring to a Nobel Prize, an actress trying to win an Oscar, you know, a singer wanting to win a Grammy. It's it, you're going to spend much more of your time in kind of the struggle, the pursuit, the journey than the destination. And once you get to the destination, at best you have a year before the next Oscars and the next Grammys and the mm -hmm. next Nobel prizes come out or the next World Series or Olympics every 4 years. And there's so much pressure put on people. I cited a study in there speaking of Olympians that that um, was referring to young Olympic athletes in their early 20s, asking them would they trade certain death at age 35 for a guaranteed gold medal in the Olympics. And the number of people that said yes to this is very disturbing. And it was not a small number. It was something like you know, 10, 20, 30% of the athletes would say yes to this. I mean, in that sense, you're getting into, you know, borderline idol worship territory. And right. I certainly think that that's true in the sciences, although we're very loath to admit it because most scientists are atheists. So to think about, oh, I'm not worshiping an idol. You know, what do you think? I'm bowing down to, you know, some golden calf? No, but, but in reality, if you're spending, you know, a good fraction of your time or not even you, you know, I made this point, unfortunately, to Scott Eastwood, who has another wonderful podcast. He's the son of Clint Eastwood, the famous actor, and he's a famous actor in his own right. And I said, look, Scott, you know, this is, you know, you've been in a lot of movies and, and, and I've been done a lot of experiments, but uh, at the end of the you know, day, you know, most Hollywood studios aren't expecting, you know, so let's pick some dumb movie like Fast and the Furious. Like, mm -hmm. they don't expect that's going to win an Oscar, you right. know, and, you know, because it's foolish, but it maybe gives them enough money to bankroll the, the Green Mile, you know, whatever. He's like, well, hold on, I was in the Fast and the Furious. I said, uh-oh. Well, that was a great movie. It was a cinematic achievement. I think it right. should have won an Oscar. You know, I was just like... Really I thought American back... cars on the forefront of <laughs> yes, consumerism. Right. <laughs> I, like, I didn't mean Fast and Furious 5. I meant... You know, so I was like, I thought back to this phrase, you know, professors should always make their words sound sweet so that when they eat them and they taste better, you know, and so I had to eat my words on that one. But, no, I, but what I, you were saying wasn't mean, though. No, it wasn't. Because the Fast and the Furious... Like, to me, when somebody... Yeah. If you take it that way, it's mm -hmm. because your ego is in a different no, place. No, no, he was very charitable. Which, but yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, like, you were still in a movie. That, yeah. in and of itself, is a larger exactly. achievement than, exactly. than most people mm -hmm. have. So to look at that as, like, yeah, but I didn't win an Oscar. Yes. It's like, yeah, but you were still in a movie. That's great. And, and a lot of people say, well, you know, to me, they'll say, oh, well, you have sour grapes, or you're a sore loser, you didn't win the, you know, the Nobel Prize. And I say, well, look, again, getting back to the Oscars, like, 
maybe every uh, actor or actress who sets out in Hollywood doesn't expect he or she will win an Academy Award, but you better believe that the studios want the amend, you know, all the Oscars that are awarded to go to their films. And yeah. one of the analog for studios when it comes to scientists, it's the universities that support us, it's the funding agencies that provide us money, it's mm -hmm. donors. And there is what you got said a few minutes ago, you know, kind of this this sensationalism almost. Like you have to trumpet these discoveries or these or findings or these winnings as the best ever, like a huge breakthrough and like, mm -hmm. you know, new molecule that can, you know, possibly diagnose cancer. And like a scientist will know as she's saying that that's never going to happen. Like, you know, they'll just know right. it's not going to happen, but they can't say that because it's like, it's very difficult to walk back those kinds of sense, the feeling of importance that you're mm -hmm. going to make this great. And, and in case in point in our field and, and in many, in many uh, times, there'll be a grand discovery it will be announced at a press conference. There'll be thousands of people in the audience. There'll be millions of people around the world that see it. And then, you know, maybe 20%, just like anything, they're, they're retracted. Eventually, the research is found to be have some flaw in it. Maybe right. it's not a blunder. Maybe it's certainly not unethical. In yeah. our case, it was, a, it was a mistake, not in the data, not in the analysis, but in the interpretation of what caused the signal to be produced. And so it wasn't at all a blunder, but we had to retract what we claimed about that the, the data were showing us. And you never see that on the front page. You never see right. big press conference, you know, the life that we said possibly came from Mars, you know, that was actually, you know, we didn't clean the test tube very well, you know, and, and, and this, this new form of, you know, gene editing that we said would cure cancer within five years. And so it's very awkward because people like champions. They yeah. like winners. And, and that's just the nature of our culture to want to be in that realm of, of the highest achievers. But the whole point of my book, I think, is to, is to say, look, you can accomplish a great deal and not win and be okay with it. Right. And the average state of being for most people is to strive and maybe not win, quote unquote, whatever that means, uh, but instead to participate and to enjoy the journey, not only for the destination. Mm -hmm. uh, so your book, I have heard you talk about it in previous conversations. Mm -hmm. So I know that there, and obviously as an academic, you're, uh, you've had to do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And one of my questions, I like to ask people a lot about um, just the different sort of tools they've developed for their work because I think that stuff is really interesting. Yeah. So how, I mean, because your book is so reference heavy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I looked, um, I looked in because he was kind enough to gift me a copy <laughs> while I was here with like a lovely, um, uh, yeah, with like a meteorite. lovely note and a meteorite <laughs> and everything um, and a, a hand drawn uh, drawing from one of his sons, which is a treat. Um but there's a solid, I would say, 15 pages of citations in yeah. the back. Mm -hmm. What's your note-taking method? Yeah. Oh, so well, I use now I use Apple Notes on my okay. iPhone, and uh, I do a lot. And, I, and originally I did stuff in Scrivener, and then it got you. I don't know if you if you know this. If you ever written anything for like a traditionally published book, but you start off, you know, writing it in whatever you like. You could write it by hand if you want, but eventually you're going to start emailing. Uh, Word document folders. I'm sure you do this with your mm -hmm. editor, even on Tumblr or whatever. Anything you've written, you're emailing back with track changes. It's the most inefficient. It's like, why not just mail them in, you know, through the right. mail? Uh, so, yeah, so I was doing a lot, trying to do as much as I could that would integrate with the Apple ecosystem, and, and that's what I use for my note-taking process. But I'm used to it because academicians, you know, as I am, we do a lot of, we want to cite references because right. the, the worst thing you can say, you can do, actually there's a, a biblical Talmudic quote that 
says, you know, when you cite a reference, you bring redemption to the world. Like, you ever hear someone say, like, Linnea, you made a great joke. I'm going to steal that joke. Like, that's pretty bad. You're, you're taking my intellectual property. You know, luckily, I'm not that funny, so I don't have to worry about it. But in, <laughs> in the case of, like, well, if I don't reference some academic, they might have worked. And one of the things that really surprised me, I wrote the book. I felt it was taking forever. It took about a year of just, like, sitting in a chair, typing it out, mm -hmm. you know, doing stuff in between all my other tasks. But um, but the rest of that time, you know, I've written papers that might have a sentence in it and a graph, and that took me a year. Right. And, and that was read by 10 people, and this is read by tens of thousands. And so, you know, it's just it, the risk-reward of the, of the, you know, it's so out of whack with traditional publishing versus scientific publishing that I wanted to at least have through the through line of academic rigor to the book because I didn't right. want anyone to say like, oh, you didn't reference my paper, you know, because that's the, I, I hate that feeling in academia. And then I knew like most people are going to skip the references, any, but they're there if you need it. <laughs> yeah, which, and so then if you're, because presumably, I mean, all of us, there's a really good, uh, oh my goodness, what is his name? Timothy Morton, do you know who he is? He's like a, an ecologist. Mm. Okay. He has a quote that I have at the top of my website that is mm -hmm. basically talking about like how nothing comes out of complete obscurity and oblivion. Everything is a culmination of all of our experiences mm -hmm. up until this moment. Uh, presumably, a lot of the stuff in your book, you've already read, so you had to go back through and oh, yeah. find these Actually, things. in the beginning, in all honesty, I was like, do I really want to write the history of cosmology again, like, for the 95th time? Why don't I just get a ghostwriter to help me with it? You know, but then I talked to a friend of mine whose name is Sean Carroll, who's a very famous writer, great scientist, and you know, kind of a mentor in many ways. And he's at Caltech. And he said, well, like, well, no, this is the first time you can tell your version of cosmology. Not like alternative cosmology, but, mm -hmm. you know, you could tell, like, what was meaningful to me. And I'm so glad that he told me that because, you know, it allowed me to focus on the people and the places and the influences that I had throughout the centuries culminating in this new work of, you know, of nonfiction in this case. Right. Um, so... Oh, man, I have so many questions. Yeah. I'm, like, setting okay. what makes the <laughs> sense to jump into next. Well, you did just mention a mentor. So one of my questions I typically ask people is yeah. also um, how they find mentors. And in your particular situation, um, I imagine the pool is small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there aren't so many mentors. And some of the mentors are actually, like, evil. You know, I don't, I don't want to get too, too in-depth about it. But there will be people, like, when I came to UC San Diego that said, like, you basically, we hired you because we expect that you're going to win a Nobel Prize, and, and we felt the, uh, you were a really good bet. And I'm like, that's a lot of pressure. Imagine you tell, like, an actress, again, you know, we're, you know, hiring you for this movie because we think you're going to win an Oscar for this portrayal of so-and-so. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. And so looking back, you know, those are kind of like counterexamples. And even people, you know, that I'm very friendly with and respect who did win Nobel Prizes and and do have this great, you know, like in a lot of ways, they're they're normal people. They're not they're not you know from another planet, and uh, so in, in my case, most of my mentors in the context of of the book weren't necessarily scientific. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were people outside of science. One of whom is is the namesake for the telescope project that I lead, called the Simons Observatory, and he's a mathematician. He's a philanthropist. He's a, um, and, and he's a, he used to run the biggest hedge fund in the world. And he, uh, and he's, you know, just the way that he conducts himself and his wife, Marilyn, so this is Jim and Marilyn Simons, the two of them have been and known me basically before I was born and are so gracious and kind and, and loving and are such, you know, we call them menches, you know, that they, they have always been mentors to me. And I'm very lucky, you know, uh, they say, you know, the greatest 
the, the most important choice you make is who you choose as your parents. You know, so I, I luckily <laughs> chose, you know, chose well. And, and my mother is a tremendous, you know, mentor to me. She actually actually writing her second book now. Really? Yeah, she writes uh, fiction, thank God, because of the topics. I'm not going to get into it, but people can look up uh, my mother on uh, on Amazon. I'll, I'll sh- give a shout out to my mom. What's but, her first name? Uh, her name is Barbara, Barbara okay. Keating. And uh, she's working on her second her second work of fiction. And I think it's amazing, you know, to have, like, I had a live-in mentor for, you know, the first 18 years of my life. Yeah. And just someone who's such a hard worker, so so dedicated, and such a good writer and enjoyable, that she has left the most lasting impression on me as a mentor in my life. How has that impacted your approach to mentoring others? Hmm. So, um, one thing I, I point out frequently is that <clears throat> the word scientist in, in the Russian language... I've said this to Russians, and they have not corrected me. When I was told this by a Russian mentor, the word scientist in Russian means someone who was taught, someone that received the teaching from somebody else. <clears throat> and so I think about that a lot because mm-hmm. the actual essence of the word implies two different implications. One is that to be a scientist, you have to be a scholar. You have to study from people that came before you and give honor to them and who came before you and whose shoulders you stand on, as Isaac Newton said, allow him to see farther because he stood on shoulders of giants. Right. But then you also have an obligation to teach people that come after you. And so I always say to my students that that is, you know, my job in some rough sense is to get them to where they want to be in their next stage of their life and their career. Mm-hmm. What happens beyond then is, you know, more up to them than to me, but I'm always going to be a part of their life. So I have in my book, a depiction of the genealogy of who was my mentor, my PhD advisor, his PhD advisor, their PhD, unfortunately it's all men. But anyway, it goes back to the 17, 17 generations. Wow, that's and so, so cool. Yeah, and then, and then thankfully the chain is now broken uh, of all, you know, uh, y, X, Y chromosomes. Because now my student Darcy Barron, who's at the University of New Mexico, uh, Albuquerque, she's a professor there. Not only is she a woman... But her first graduate student's a woman. So now she's the 18th generation. Her student Kayla is the 19th generation. So now in this next generation, we're part of this unfurling chain of scientists that stretch, you know, back in my case to the late 1500s before Galileo's discoveries. Hopefully, you know, another 15, you know, uh, you know to, to 20 generations in the future. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think when you're able to look at that sort of chain of impact, it does take a lot of the individual pressure off mm-hmm. um, because, you know, part of, and I love that part of the title and sort of like the subtitle of your book has to do mm-hmm. with ambition, yeah. right? That's and right. so when you can, um, one thing that I think about and, and something, a theme that reoccurs in this podcast because it's been on my mind for mm-hmm. a long time. So I went to school, I started off school as a photojournalism major and then I switched to sociology. Mm-hmm. To me, those are not that disparate like they're Mm. not that different Mm -hmm. because photojournalism is capturing society and sociology is just studying society Mm -hmm. basically so like when people were like oh my gosh what a huge transition (laughs) and I was like I mean the only transition is now I can study whenever whereas with photojournalism I couldn't have a full-time job and go to school because photojournalism happens like you can't plan for when news is supposed to happen no exactly I can't pick up shifts and like it was a whole snafu with just having to pay for schooling myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, it also so, explains why your pictures on Instagram are so good. Oh, well, thank High you. High quality, composition, <laughs> framing, you. and light. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Quick plug, follow That's me right. on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> right. <Lene> <laughs> <Cook>. <laughs> 
And uh, Brian is at act Dr. Brian Keating Correct. across social, which That's is, right. I'm so glad it's the same across social. Yes. It just makes my life easier. Yes, exactly. Um, sharing this. <laughs> so, um, and then at the same time, when people would separate sociology from psychology and biology mm-hmm. and these other, it's, but they're all connected mm-hmm. because we don't, we don't approach our life like we don't turn into robots when we show up at work. Right. Like we don't go like, oh, this is my subconscious working. Like that's the point of a subconscious. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, right. It's my super ego. Right. <laughs> totally. And mm-hmm. so I think that by um, looking at sort of that, you know, tree of impact mm-hmm. and the culmination of learnings and it makes you go like, okay, my my legacy will last. Like right. because a lot of people stress over their legacy if they're not winning awards. That's it's right. like who will remember me? Right. Mm-hmm. I hate to break it to people, but I'm like, I mean, yeah, I'm like, name people? your great-great-grandfather. Like, most right. people can't do that, Most people right? can't do that. And, and guess like, what? That's going to be you. Right. Like, someday. And name one other person, you know, that you can think of that was alive during, like, Leonardo da Vinci's age, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can think of maybe two. Right. So, yeah, it's exactly. fine. Right. No one's remembered. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and that's okay, right? that's okay. It should give you, you know, part of the, you know, some of the parts of the book where, you know, inevitably, as I say, you know, the villain of the book, in some sense, is dust. Is these particles of dust mm. that create mirages that trick astronomers like me into seeing what they want to believe to confirm the theories of uh, that they have, the preconceived prejudice known as confirmation, confirmation bias. bias. Yeah. And so falling into that trap caused by dust, and yet in the in the Bible, and I don't care if you believe in the Bible or not, but uh, but you know at least as, as a work of literature, you can say that it has some certain you know sta- staying power. I mean, it's been around right. for thousands of years. All right. So it says ashes to ashes, dust to dust, meaning that the first man in history, according to tradition, was Adam. Mm-hmm. The word Adam in Hebrew means dust or dirt. And God, if you know your Bible, formed Adam from dirt of the earth, meaning you know the lowest form of manner that there possibly is. And then later on, dust to dust means that you started out as dust and you're going to end up as dust. Yeah. So you really have these these two you know bookends of your life between mm-hmm. which you have an opportunity to make an impact through life and love and, and teaching and being taught. These periods of dust that per, that that punctuate your life. Right. That's all you have. These two periods of dust. Well, and to your point about you have the opportunity to make an impact. Like we're all making an impact. Correct. Whether it's intentional or not. Mm-hmm. So. It's fascinating to me sometimes when people worry about their impact. And it's like, by doing anything, you're making an impact. That's what is so frustrating in some sense. I mean, so the Nobel Prize is only three chapters out of 13 chapters in the book. But one of them is about this very pernicious aspect of the Nobel Prize that only allows three scientists at most to be recognized for a discovery that may have required 6,000 people. So how do you go about that? Like, I know if I took away one of my students and, you know, she gets taken and she goes and works for Microsoft because she wants to make 10 times more than I make as a state university professor, that she will, you know, I can't can't replace her. It's very hard. It will take a long time. She has special skills, special special tools that nobody else has, and it's going to be very, very difficult. So now um, put that on a scale of an experiment that cost a billion dollars and that each person is so precious and, it, and then, and then you're, but you're only allowed to recognize three of them right. and it's not like any of the winners ever turn it down and say, oh no, actually, you know, I'm, I'm not going to accept this because you didn't. Well, you said that somebody did turn it down until his wife could accept it, correct? correct? Yeah. So that was, that was uh, the first woman who ever went to Marie Curie. Right. Uh, her husband, basically, he was going to get awarded it in the beginning of uh, 1902, I believe it was. And he said, no, I'm not going to accept it unless she gets it as well. And the Nobel Committee acquiesced. Even though an Alfred Nobel, he originally stipulated that only one person could win it, even worse. And that was really to perpetuate this myth that there's just mostly lone you know, men working in isolation that make these discoveries. And that's, right. and that's 
I don't think it's ever been true, but but certainly it's not true now. Yeah, that's um, okay. So one thing that I love that you mm -hmm. said on the same subject was in one of your talks, you said that the media is in part to blame because there's an immense pressure surrounding outstanding breakthroughs and insights. So, um, well, you didn't say insights. I said insights mm -hmm. in my notes. <laughs> so what sort of, um, as consumers of media, right, like really uh, news stories continue to go this way of um, very sort of, um, what's the word for it? Sort of just like outstanding salacious news. Salacious. Exactly. Salacious right. news. Mm -hmm. Like Controversial, these big stories. Yes. Um, breakthrough moments. Huge highlight breakthroughs. Yep. Mm -hmm. How, That's as consumers true. of media, like they're only doing that because we continue to click them by exactly. magazines with those titles on it. Mm -hmm. um, how would you encourage consumers to impact media in the other direction to do like deeper storytelling? Like who do you think does great deep storytelling well I think that there's there are a few sources that get in deep and that actually consult with scientists rather than just the information officers at their university and I have a great relationship with people here at UC San Diego and they do wonderful pieces on me and my my uh, co-workers here but you know a lot of it and I've I know the game and I can play the game if I wanted to uh, but there are ways to manipulate what gets out there and as I said you know you'll never hear you know great discovery of a black hole, you know, exploding a mile, you know, it, it retracted. Like, there's no, there's not going to be a big press conference for that. Yeah. Uh, but realize that the job of science is to prove itself wrong. The job of science is for verification by replication. And that was one of the downfalls of our experiment, or one of the upshots of our experiment, that we released our data results because, in part, we thought we were going to be scooped, potentially, by another experiment, if we had waited any longer. And in order to avoid that, at least in some opinions, we kind of rushed to publication without peer review, which is in kind of a hallmark of science, but it's by no means a panacea. There are many press conferences uh, that have taken place, you know, at NASA and, and other places where, where the imprimatur of this greatest scientific organization on Earth, like NASA or the National Science Foundation, is saying, we bless this result because it was peer reviewed. Peer review is one person, and it might be a friend or really? it might be, yeah, it's typically one person, maybe two, for a very serious, significant paper. Wow. Yeah. I, I assumed that it was several. Like, no. I assumed it was, like, fact-checking, for, for, sort of. For research grants, it could be five or six. You know, when you're applying for millions of dollars, you know, the government uh -huh. panels that will get assembled, they will review it. And sometimes it's a thousand people that will have to review it if it's a space mission or something like right. that. Uh, so in that case, it's very different, but that's not that's to get the funding to do the experiment. Mm -hmm. Once the experimental data is acquired, I mean, there are very few people that can understand the research that I do. Right. Uh, just like there's, I can't understand the research that my colleague upstairs does. I mean, it's totally different from what I do. Uh -huh. And there's only so much you know time in the day to be an expert in any one field. So you really only have one peer. You're that, like, this is the only peer I <laughs> pretty have. Pretty much. And, and that makes it dangerous, right? Yeah. yeah right. Definitely. So there's some people that say, like, I don't believe in peer review. I have no peers. Uh, <laughs> that's a funny cartoon. <laughs> but um, but in reality, yeah, I mean, how do you, it's such an esoteric field. Right. Um, and then there might be people that want to, that that peer is actually your competitor and he or she's going to want to you know prove you wrong and there right. is a nice healthy adversarial aspect in that you want to vet and prove what's coming out beyond a shadow of a doubt yeah but it's very susceptible and actually the other thing that most people don't know is that when there's a proposal for many many projects 
They're reviewed by, as I said, maybe five or six people, but those people might have just gotten their PhDs. They might not even mm. be professors, and, and that's not saying that there's any guarantee of that a professor is better. Or, right. Uh, but it's very junior people because they have more time. Yeah. And the older, more senior people, you know, they may or may not have time. And so it's become a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of degenerate, not in the like perverted, but just like you're just relying on the same people time after time after time. And I don't think that that's necessarily healthy, and I don't think the public appreciates that. So getting back to, you know, what does the public know about how the sausage is made, it's it's pretty, um, it's, a, it's a relatively thin veneer of, you know, of how, uh, of how science is actually done that, that makes its way into the public consciousness. So therefore, you know, scientists will often amplify the impact first through their local you know, departmental press offices, then that they'll hopefully get that picked up by the local newspaper, then that might get picked up by a national newspaper, and then and then that could get, you know, start getting more and more attention. But there's very few articles or, or scientific journal articles that make it out into the world, and sometimes they're very sensational, like mm-hmm. possible, you know, visiting spacecraft from another, you know, part of the galaxy. That'll get a lot of attention. And then when somebody writes a paper proving it completely wrong and, and, and that there's no chance that it was from, then no one will get any attention for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone that you've seen online? Um, because I, I don't know, I guess perhaps uh, larger media outlets are hard to sort of go like, oh, they always do a great job or whatever. Mm-hmm. But is there anyone that you've seen who perhaps online or through a newsletter or whatever does a decent job, if not a good job, of like interpreting scientific information, putting it into layman's terms, and then sharing it um, yeah, either I mean, in your field or just across Yeah, a lot fields. of the newspapers, a lot of the major newspapers do a good job. The New York Times, um, the Washington Post, they, they all have dedicated you know, real old-fashioned reporters, uh, San Diego Union Tribune mm-hmm. here has a very good reporter, also the LA Times he, he writes for, uh, Gary Robbins. And, and the question of how you, um, you know, disseminate beyond that, now, I mean, that's a pretty broad canal. You could say, well, not too many people are reading newspapers nowadays. Uh, so then it's uh, there's a lot of kind of online explainers, you know, YouTube, um, I, you know, I call them digesters, you know, in some sense, like there's a guy, Fraser Kane, who's a Canadian Mm-hmm. Um, uh, YouTuber who doesn't, who's also a scientist, and he does an amazing job. There's a guy who writes for Forbes named Ethan Siegel. He he does. He's an actual scientist, so they're doing scientific uh, dissemination to the public, mm-hmm. but they know it, they understand it from a scientific point of view. There's a new, uh, relatively new magazine and podcast called Quanta Quanta Magazine. They have wonderful writers there. Um, well, then presumably also your podcast. Uh, yeah. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> what is My podcast, podcast is more driven by interviewing the personalities and the people behind creative endeavors. Oh, cool. With, surrounding the fundamental question, can you teach creativity? Ah. Can I teach you to think creatively about subject X? It doesn't have to be science, but, but yeah. it typically is either science fiction the arts, you know, painting or poetry, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, engineering, you know, STEM type stuff. Right. Um, and then it could be, you know, other kinds of cultural things like we had on Julianne Guthrie, who's a friend of mm-hmm. mine. She wrote a book called How to Make a Starship and then a Spaceship. And then she has a new book about the women venture capitalists that made Silicon Valley possible. So, you know, we have a pretty diverse group of people yeah. that come on. And uh, usually it's authors because I like to interview authors and get their, you know, do a one-on-one interview. Because well, I'm good with words, also. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I always hated the interviews, like podcasts, and I'm glad that you don't do this. But like, you know, tell me about your book. Tell me the exact thesis, subject matter, and the plot line of your book, so that nobody in the audience has to buy it. And you're like, <laughs> well, and also, I mean, that kind of thing.
thing to me. It's like you could just Google it. Yeah, like, Google why it. Not? Exactly. Um, or buy the audiobook. <laughs> right. Totally. I. Uh, you were, what were you just? Oh, you said something that made me think of something else. You were talking about that woman coming on your podcast. Oh, uh, the Silicon Valley. It'll come back to mm-hmm. me eventually. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about because you have a lot going on. Yeah. You have. Mm-hmm. You're a professor. Yes. Um, you're on at least one board that mm-hmm. I know of. Yeah, several boards. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about your responsibilities a little bit as a professor because I think that that is something that a lot of students don't understand, mm-hmm. um, how professors are incentivized, what sort of, like, all the different things that you're juggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also on top of that, um, presumably, most professors also would like to continue to be, like, challenged and learning and growing on their own in yeah. their own fields. Very so you're balancing so. teaching with research. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I assume that you're also involved in any sort of, like, funding stuff yeah. that goes on here. Yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah, it's almost at, at times it could be all three, any one of those three or four t- subjects could be number one, but always consistently fundraising has to be at the top. These experiments that I'm involved with cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars. They're conducted uh, in space at the South Pole, Antarctica, where my mm-hmm. book takes place, um, in the tops of mountains in Chile, where my current project, the Simons Observatory, takes place at right. 17,000 feet above sea level. So getting, you know, people, logistics, you know, the tools and all these telescopes up to those, it's a tremendous logistical feat, which then relies on money, which then relies on proposals, which then depend on, well, how, you know, how proven is your track record in this field and convincing different funding agencies that you should do it. Because otherwise, you're not going to write papers. I mean, you'll always be teaching. So mm-hmm. you have a base salary as a professor. Uh, for nine months academic year, which you're paid to teach here, it's three quarters a year, one course per quarter, and that can be anything from introductory physics for non-majors to advanced graduate, uh, you know, classes for astrophysicists in training. So I've taught everything along that spectrum in the 15 years I've been at UC San Diego, um, and it's very enjoyable. It's very challenging the first time you teach a class because you have to prepare lecture notes from scratch. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's like a rabbi and he teaches in a school and he's like, you know, with YouTube now, do your students like, do they question you? And like, do they question your authority? Because I find like a lot of my students are questioning me because they'll go out and they'll look up something by some famous, you know, religious teacher. And then, you know, uh, that person, he or she will then say something like, well, no, they explain this part of the Bible like that, you know, and he's just like, you can't, I can't compete with, you know, Rabbi YouTube. (laughs) And in my case, you know, I said not as much, you know, because I'm the world's best teacher and very humble too. No, I said, (laughs) no, it's because in our, in, in my case, at least it's facts, right? So I'm teaching facts. I'm teaching a chain of logic, maybe some history. What were the historical precedents for this particular theory? Why was it so important, revolutionary and, and transformative, et cetera, et cetera, this experiment? And so it's different, it's fundamentally different. But I think, you know, certainly the first time you teach a class is very time consuming because you want to do it. You want to put your own spin on it. And you want to, you have to cover certain material in order so that the next professor after you isn't mad at you for not preparing the students. I've had that happen. Uh, for I've been mad at a previous professor, shall I say, for the second course of a three-course class. I'm not going to tell who that is, Professor Johnson. No, I'm just kidding. That <laughs> uh, that doesn't exist. Um, so so teaching is a big part of it, but it's not it's not necessarily the most challenging part of it. It may be the most rewarding part because you get to interact with students and and transform them. Although, 
you know, I've often wondered, like, how can you measure that, like, Brian Keating had an impact on, you know, whatever, Lene Cook, when she took, you know, physics, you know, four with him. It's very challenging to learn what are the metrics for impact. Whereas doing a research citation, you know, I'll get citations where people right. refer to Keating's paper from 2007, and then they're still using my results from 25 years ago. So it's very rewarding, and so that's kind of like the getting the likes on Instagram, as you yeah. as you often do. Um, and how do you actually discern the metric of of competency and recency and separate from the recency of the knowledge? It's very difficult to do. Well, imagine how it feels for preschool teachers. Yeah, no, that's I true mean, too. Yeah. Well, actually, I had a theory about it. This is very controversial. Uh, I gave a class one. I, I taught preschoolers once, and I said, "Look, kids, you know, you have to think about." Um, uh, today we're going to talk about Mars and what it would be like to be the first people to land on Mars. And you have to pack, you know, what are you going to bring? Do you, what don't you want to bring? Right. What's hard? And then this is a class of like 100 students. I was sponsored by NASA. This is a graduate school fellowship. And this little girl starts bawling, runs out of the classroom, goes up to her teacher. teacher's hugging her. Tears are streaming down both their faces. I'm like, that's it. You know, I'm done. That was a good career. You know, I'm done in graduate school. NASA's going to fire me. And then uh, afterwards, I went up to her and I said, you know, whatever, Mrs. Johnson, uh, you know, what's going on? Why did she run out? What's wrong? I hope everything's right. I didn't say anything, you know, uh, incorrect, did I? And she's like, no, no, no. She just said, you know, I didn't tell my mommy that I was going to Mars today. <laughs> and I and I, and I forgot to tell I forgot to tell her that I'll be back late. And I just like, I almost lost it. You know, That's so, so sweet. But you realize how vivid it is. And I yeah. started thinking about like, well, what does it mean to teach someone and teach them according to like something that they can make very visceral for them. And so now I, I have a perspective on teaching, you know, very young kids, and, and I do have young kids at home with my wife, um, and trying to teach one each one individually in a certain sense according to what they're curious about. Because every kid is a scientist. Mm -hmm. Every kid wants to do some kind of experiment or another and find out what happens when it does. And so you actively have to like drum it out of them their curiosity to be a scientist it shouldn't be like why are so few people going into science and technology especially young girls and i have i have a couple of daughters uh, but also you know like why aren't they staying in i think that's a better question like not not, not keeping them out but why how can we keep them in? and boys too because you know boys boys also have uh, extreme challenges uh in in all levels of education so i think yes it's certainly a valid question i i, I get the intent of your question and i think i agree with it um, and the question is, you know, it's certainly true that our job is not just to prepare people for their next job, but also to create talented, uh, inquisitive, curious members of society at large. Which is, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to do when also you're held to like, here's also everything that you have to cover. Correct. Right. That's, yeah. that's a lot. And so, so you're teaching and then mm -hmm. I know, cause my dad is an adjunct professor. Mm -hmm. And so then I know that you guys have to keep certain like office hours or whatever where you're available. Yeah. yeah. So there's, you know, a couple hours of preparation for each hour. You know, sometimes when I'm feeling, you know, peakish, I'll say, you know, it's the hardest three hour a week job in the world. <laughs> uh, but those are only three hours in lecture. And then you might have, you know, nine hours of preparation, two hours right. in the office. But once you've taught it a couple of times, it becomes quite easy, you know, to actually, you don't have to rewrite the lecture notes. Um, you might change the pace a little bit, and there's different mm -hmm. holidays and different schedules, so you have to figure around that. Um, but then, the, you know, the real other kinds of activities that we do are serve on committees, like, in order, you know, someday I'm going to retire, and someone has to replace me, and this university is growing tremendously, a plug for UCSD, you know, we're trying to have a couple thousand more undergraduates here in the next five years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to keep the student-to-teacher ratio with the constancy, we need to hire more professors. So it's very hard to hire a professor. If I want to hire Linnae, 
I have to do a lot of research because you can't, I can't, you know, the least, and one of my older colleagues says, at least with, you know, uh, your husband, if you don't like him, you can divorce him. Once you're <laughs> tenured, you're like, that person's going to yeah. be here and you might be with them. You know, uh, some people here I've known longer than I've known my wife. I mean, it's just a right. fact, right? So, and then you can't divorce them, you know? So yeah. you think very carefully in the beginning. And we've had great, outstanding success with our hires here. Um, and, and I'm very proud to have served on the committees. As I mentioned in the beginning, Shelly Wright, who is here uh, with me at Comic-Con last night. You know, I think I'm very proud because I was one of the ones that recruited her here. And I was mentoring her at some point. Now she's mentoring other people and she's recruiting other people. It's just an amazing, that's one of the nicest parts about academia. That and you meet people from every corner of the earth, like yeah. every single continent, every country, you know, you can go into a library, you can go to a university, they'll know who you are and, and you can know who they are and you'll never be lonely, you know, because you'll either be on a telecon with these people or you'll be at a conference. <laughs> so it's, it is a wonderful life. It's not for everybody. but that, Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so... Um, I have a few questions that people submitted because I know that you saw on like Instagram and Twitter that I put uh -huh. sort of like, you oh, know. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't see questions. the questions, but yes. Uh -huh. Well, because people felt the need to text and DM okay. me instead right. of asking publicly, <laughs> which uh, for those of you who did that, that does not help the algorithm <laughs> help me at all. Um, so, well, and then one of them wasn't even from the internet. One of them was from my Uber driver this oh, morning, cool. all right, um, which you sort of already answered. He uh -huh. was asking what you originally started off being interested in when you, when you started, which you said you were very interested in sort of achieving what you felt like, you know, your your father hadn't and telling the story and winning a Nobel Prize. And then yeah. you learned, you've yeah. learned a lot along the way and wrote a book about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I'd rather have not had the bad experiences and not written the book, you know, it's like an Orwell's Animal Farm. The donkey says something like, you know, well, God gave me a tail to sweep away the flies, but I'd rather not have the flies and not need the tail. You know, it's like, I'd rather have not had to, you know, go through this emotional racket, you know, and like, there's some, a lot of loss in the book too. I mean, it's yeah. a memoir. It's not, it's not a typical, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, here's everything, whiz bang, impress you with how smart, mm -hmm. you know, and Neil's very smart. He's also a co-author in my uh, publishing firm that, that I wrote for Norton. Um, and he's a brilliant expositor of all things astrophysical, but it's not, he doesn't get into like a lot of personal stuff in this book. Right. This was very personal because I want to depict scientists as they actually are, not like walking Wikipedias that just know everything and have no doubts and are, you know, completely divorced from the implications, ethical, moral, spiritual, whatever. And divorced from growth. Yeah. Because a lot of those imply like, oh, I've arrived. Yes. I'm done with my learning. Right, Let I don't have to. Right, exactly. And I think you stop learning, you stop living. You know, it's kind of yeah. like oh, retiring from intellectual pursuits. I mean, it's like I'd rather be, you know, just just sit in front of YouTube all day and just. <laughs> but totally. but for me, that would be a nightmare because my, you know, I don't have uh, I, I don't have many talents other than I think I'm I'm very curious. I'm very passionate. I love learning and, you know, like my wife teases me because I like go to bed and I want to listen to like a podcast or whatever. Yeah. Like I even when I'm asleep and it'll keep going when I'm asleep and I'll wake up and I'm like, oh, I heard this good idea, but like where did it come from? Oh, it must be my brilliant. Um, so I'm always reading and that's sort of some of my advice. You ask me like what are some of the – so I have this like spreadsheet of, of like what I call Keating's Rules. Uh, not that I'm like the great par greatest paragon of success. In fact, I openly admit my hubris, my you know basic humiliation, and and all these different things in the book. But in reality, I think the one trait that I do have is this relentless curiosity that I always want to be learning because of the fact that I realize the finitude of life 
is going to, you know, it's almost stoic in a sense that you know life is going to come to an end. Yeah. And more than that, you know that like, you know, like we might extend our life expectancy. I did a podcast with this uh, man, Dave Asprey, who does You were like, on Dave Asprey's yeah, podcast? Yeah, I was on his when? podcast. When? Recently? Uh, this is about a month or two ago, yeah. Oh, I'm surprised I haven't. I'm like a closet Dave Asprey. Yeah, oh, he's really fine. I'll show, you his, uh, I'll show you his sunglasses that he sent me. Oh, please do. anti-light uh, sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, it's really funny. Um, so he was saying, well, like, how old do you want to, how long do you want to live for? everybody. Yeah, and, and he said, well, I want to live to 180. And he points out, like, he wants to be, like, mentally fit at 180. He doesn't want right. to just be like, okay, 85, and With then a, a vegetable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> he wants to be, you know, really active and engaged. And he's doing everything, you know, stem cells into the brain. and Cryo. A lot like, of, all yeah. kinds of like yeah he does a lot of very interesting research he does um, and I think you know it's it's amazing how much that's aged him no I'm just kidding he's <laughs> he's a remarkably handsome man um, but the but the you know I think for me the the actual essence of what I want to do is I mean it's just like literally impossible to be, be a professor beyond a certain age in the University of California system so I know I've only Wait, got is it really well basically it's uh, you'll have to become an emeritus at some point and I think what it's does a, that mean? it means Sorry. that you're no longer active teaching you're not, you know, show. I mean, it's hard to so ninety what age year old. Should they cut you off? Uh, I mean, the official retirement, I think, uh, um, will either begin at seventy or somewhere around seventy. Uh huh. I believe you have to become an, which means you still have an office. You still have a, um, you still can teach if you want. You can still yeah. supervise PhD theses. You could become but, a YouTuber. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can go on YouTube. So I definitely want to max, and I'm kind of like halfway to retirement at this stage of my life. Midlife crisis is setting in, as I say. Um, but uh, but in terms of what you're able to accomplish when you have the you know funding, you have the intellectual kind of responsibility and networks that are built up over years, and the experience as a scientist. You know, it's not like a mathematician, which my father was. You know, who they say do their best work by age 30. You know, mm -hmm. thank God. Uh, you know, that's not true. I hope it's not true for physicists because we're accumulating a lot more wisdom and knowledge about the physical world but you know eventually that's gonna not be as in full force as it is now so i'm very acutely aware of that and as i said in a stoic sense i do contemplate that a lot yeah the finitude of of all things in career um and how that will actually play out in my life and in terms of what i can actually accomplish okay and then i got a few more questions so one question is thoughts about buzz aldrin visiting south pole and saying it was evil <laughs> i didn't hear that it was evil but i do relish the fact that he's like this uber macho guy even in his 80s he punched out the guy who said the moon landing didn't happen and he gets to the south pole where i've been i spent weeks and weeks of my life and he couldn't hack it so buzz <laughs> I got one over on you, buddy. You may have walked on the moon. The buzz is a character. Um, indeed. <laughs> um, how was the C-130 ride to Antarctica? So what was it like? It may, gave me a newfound appreciation for Southwest Airlines, I have to say. Um, <laughs> it, it allowed me to never complain about such flights ever in the future. Uh, so it was, you know, about 100 people, 50 to 100 people. There are no windows on the plane for the passengers. There's no bathroom on the plane, uh, except there's a bucket in the back, which they call the honeypot, and it has a curtain around it that looks like it came out of the movie Psycho. You know, it's like blood stains on it, and you don't, you don't want to go Is on this thing if you don't. Is the fixed onto anything? Is that uh, at least on That's a good thing? question. It must be. It must be because it didn't slide around. Okay. And they do some, <laughs> I had some, some very amazing, serious yeah. concerns. So, and the worst part, you don't get any frequent flyer miles. Forget Southwest. It makes Spirit look good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> what other projects did you see in Antarctica? So there's a couple of really cool projects down there. There's a project that's literally attached to my project, which is called BICEP, 
The attached project is called the South Pole Telescope, and it's a telescope that's over about 35 feet in diameter, an enormous telescope. They're also looking for similar signals from the early universe, but in their case, they're looking at it through the lenses of galaxies that are in existence be, uh, in a certain sense after the origin of the universe. So they see in backlight, you can see these galaxy clusters that are the most massive structures in the entire universe, and they're using them as basically scales, you know, to weigh the universe. And what is the universe's weight or mass? And what are the masses of the constituent particles that make up the universe? Then, speaking of particles, so there's many different types of what are called elementary particles. Uh, unlike the proton, the neutron, the crouton, uh, you can divide up those <laughs> particles. No, the crouton doesn't exist, except in my dreams. If I ever discover Don't a particle, people. I'm going to call it the crouton. Okay. It's the most delicious particle. I mean, who wouldn't like it? It's the only reason to eat a salad, it's right? Let's true. be honest. Yeah, the saltiest um, particle you can find. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so those can be subdivided. The proton can be divided into what are called quarks. A quarks we don't think can be subdivided, although some people say they're vibrating strings behind those. There are another types, other types of particles called neutrinos, and these are like ghosts. These are going through about, you know, tens of thousands are going through our bodies right now, produced in nuclear reactions such as that is occurring on the sun right now. They travel close to the speed of light, but maybe not exactly the speed of light. If they have a little bit of mass, which they know that we know that they do, one of them at least has mass. And so the question of how these neutrinos behave as they travel throughout the universe is being observed by an experiment which has the single best name, except for BICEP, because I invented the BICEP name acronym, <laughs> which actually stands for something. This one doesn't stand for anything, but it's called Ice Cube. And the reason it's so cool is that they were sued by the actual Ice Cube, the ask. rapper, for uh, really? use of their trademark, of his trademark, so they could not use IceCube.com, and instead they have, like, Ice Cube Neutrino Detector, whatever. Anyway, the cool thing about it is it's a cubic kilometer of ice underneath the South Pole, some of the purest ice on the planet, if not the purest ice ever, and so it's a telescope, in a sense. That's a cubic kilometer, a kilometer by a kilometer by a kilometer. Think of how wow. massive that is, bigger than any other telescope on Earth of a conventional design. Right. And they're capturing the flashes of light that are produced by new, uh, neutrinos and other particles called muons as they decay and, and, and travel throughout the, uh, this very pristine ice underneath the South Pole in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. There are also a great deal of, of non-astrophysics projects that are studying uh, geophysics, the atmosphere, the aurora, uh, things like that, and climate change uh, that yeah. take place from the South Pole. And the cool thing at the South Pole is if we were ever to leave it, uh, so when the when the when Buzz and Neil went to the moon, they planted a flag, and the reason they did that was not just like ceremonial, it's so that we could actually claim it was sovereign territory of the United States. It turns Very out the South Eddie Pole stand up of them. Yeah, <laughs> fits right into the. I don't know why you didn't incorporate that. So at the South Pole, same thing. If we leave the South Pole. Any other nation on Earth who gets there could plant the flag there and claim it as their sovereign territory. And so we have a vast need to do science. And there's no, um, there, are, there are no military or economic mining. There's nothing like that allowed in Antarctica by international treaty. So the only reason to be there is science. And so it's a continent inhabited by, at most, you know, in the winter, maybe 800 people on the entire continent. So you could be like, the person with the reddest hair on the entire continent. Finally, you know, I, do your dream, <laughs> your dream. Finally, stop drinking all this carrot juice. God. <laughs>
well, the, our eyesight would still it would still be uh, unparalleled. Um, in our case, the you know it's a place of superlatives in many ways, not just for that fact that there's so few people there, um, but but also because it's the coldest, driest, highest continent on Earth. So um, it has many advantages, and mm -hmm. that's a long-winded way of saying how. Uh, unique an experience I got to, you know, uh, um, experience when I was in the process of writing this book and doing this research. That's incredible. Um, okay, let's switch to family stuff. Mm -hmm. So I like to talk to people about just how they have, you know, you have had your career, presumably, before mm -hmm. your marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and then you were in a relationship and you yeah. got married. You and your wife have several kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I would love to know how you have um, worked on your relationship and like things that you've done. Like, I don't know, some people do date nights or whatever that is to still have time for each other mm -hmm. while you're working full time. You have several children. I don't know if your wife works full time also, but that's... She doesn't. She will. She'll get back to work. I mean, in in the in the near future. But yeah, we have a, a lot of young kids running around at home, and the I think the thing you know I was asked. I was on this very interesting panel the other night. It's called the International Organization of Noetic Scientists, which I didn't know existed, but it's it's sort of new age spirituality meets Buddhism, old age. You know, but like um, Deepak Chopra type people are there. Mm -hmm. He was actually there. Um, and um, and this woman, Yvonne Cagle, who's a, an astronaut and a medical doctor and for NASA and an inventor. And so she was on the panel with me. And then there are some people that are out there, you know, like uh, vibrational resonances and management, you know, technology and energetic healing with lights and lamps and stuff. And, and they asked us all, someone said, like, well, each of you are so accomplished. And I was like, well, the astronaut's pretty accomplished. Yeah, Yvonne's amazing. Uh, but they're like, you, what's your superpower? And I said, my superpower is convincing my wife that it's important for me to go away and ditch her and leave her with the kids for the weekend yeah. uh, while I go off and have all this fun up there. But I think, you know, my wife understands what gives me meaning is, is the same at home as it is, you know, with my students who are kind of like children in a sense that, like, education means to take out of. The actual word in Latin means to take out from something, to draw forth. And that's sort of like, you're asking me, to, you're, if you're my educator, I'm, you're asking me to give you a gift, to give you something. Well, I don't give gifts to people I don't love. And so, like, teaching is an act of love. Education is an act mm. of love. So there is this closeness. Of course, it's always platonic, obviously, in the case of my students and, in, in, you know, um, with my children, there is this ideological and then biological kind of similarity between children and and students. And I think that she appreciates that's who I am. I am a teacher. I am an educator. I am full of love. And she understands that's my oxygen and that's what I need. Uh, and she, you know, she comes from like a theatrical background. She understands that being a professor is kind of like being, you know, an, an actor. And there was actually a, a small, you know, one act play made about uh, a one a man play made about my book, which is kind of cool. Uh, really? And she knows how theatrical it was. I'll, I'll send you some info about that. It was only yeah. played. It only aired one. It was opening and closing night in the same night. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but what uh, you know, she she realizes what nourishes me, and then she has things that nourish her, and we try to trade that. And yeah, we do tr always try to make time for each other and do out once a week, no matter what. Uh, we have a night together, unless I'm you know in Antarctica or something like that that we know we're going to be together and it's and the kids are going to be fine and we have you know we pour some food and water on the floor no no we are you know we have luckily you know we have house in-laws and sitters and stuff and um and no i'm very blessed though but it's it's a lot of it's luck like i remember you know talking to her grandfather once and he was saying you know like you know how'd you guys meet and i said i was so lucky if you go back and it's all this kind of um 
another form of bias, like survivorship bias, like how you got to this particular point, you're going to see it through the lens of like all these coincidences, like, you know, I got a B plus on this exam, and if I had gotten an A, I would have gotten into Harvard, and I would have been not at UCLA, whatever, all these stupid ideas. And he's like, at the end, he's like, well, if you didn't mean her, you'd meet another version of her. <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about, the multiverse here? So, but I am lucky, <laughs> and, I, and I do, you know, a lot of it is based on, you know, how lucky we are to live in America and have, be at peace and... You know, in olden days, they'd take an astronomer like me or a physicist like me and put me to work in some military, you know, and some countries do that right now. Yeah. So I'm very lucky. And I think we just, you know, we appreciate that the luck is mostly unearned and, and try to enjoy it. <laughs> so one thing I was thinking about, because uh, I was lucky enough to encounter some of your kids yeah. when I got mm -hmm. here. That's right. And uh, <laughs> you ran to the bathroom real quick. And hearing their conversation, I realized, and I guess I've thought about this to some degree before, but I thought like, what do you do? I mean, when obviously you're like uh, a very smart person and very educated, uh, I would I say. I still need to like sing the whole alphabet song to know what comes after Q. Like, I'm smart, right. but I'm not. You, you know, know. Uh, there's there's some retention that's. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Um, how have you approached education for your kids? So that's very interesting because I think there are parallels between how you educate your actual biological children and your ideological children. And some people can't have kids or don't want kids, and that's totally fine. It's not like, I'm a great teacher because I have kids. No, I, had, I was teaching long before I had kids. Um, one thing I notice is that you'll find something that kids are interested in. And one of my friends, Mario Livio, who's a retired professor from Johns Hopkins, he worked on the Space Telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, he says, like, you want to teach kids about gravity, don't start with, like, the inverse square law, you know, <laughs> like, it's not going to do it. You know, he's like, but talk about the dinosaurs and how they get killed and mm. what wiped them out. And it was a meteor. It crashed into, you know, like, the little tiny piece I gave you. Uh, yeah. But it was a much bigger version. It crashed in, you know, Chicxulub, which my older son, younger son will tell you, you know, the name of how to pronounce this place in the Yucatan. And, and, it, and it's created what's called the KT boundary. And, like, he's six years old, and he knows all this stuff because he's curious. Yeah. But if I started off and I was like, you know, the force that pulled it down to Earth, it was gravity, and gravity's inverse square, and, and it acts in the spin-to field, you know, he would just tune out. But because of that, he's really interested. So I start to look for opportunities where their curiosity meshes with something in physics. And I'll mm -hmm. leave your audience with this one. Like, if you ever look at certain coins in America or elsewhere in other countries too, like a quarter. A quarter, the, the rim of the quarter has ridges on it, but the rim of a penny does not. You're like, well, is that just stylistic? A dime has it, but a nickel doesn't. So you're like, well, a penny doesn't have it, but a nickel, oh, why is it? Like, so it must have something to do with the value. And what, what is it made of? Well, nowadays they're not made of like precious metals. Uh, they used to be made of silver, these coins. And it turns out for thousands of years, people knew that they could actually uh, inflate the value of money or devalue the money by taking a coin of gold or silver and shaving off the outer, you know, half of a millimeter of that coin, and eventually the thousand coins and you've taken off a half a millimeter, you start to get a lot of gold and a lot of silver. Mm. So to detect that counterfeiting or deflationary process, what coin makers and mint masters, going back to Isaac Newton, uh, used to do is they put ridges fluting on the edge of the coin so that it would be detectable if somebody had shaved down the coin for some reason. Now, why is that? Well, it turns out that's because the coins made of silver are more valuable than coins made of copper. And that traces what's called the abundance ratio. So my older son, my oldest son, he's really interested in coins. So I start talking to him about it. And I'll say, did you know that that is because of a supernova? He's like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, supernovas are really cool. And like, well, where did it come from? Or it'll be because of two neutron stars collided mm -hmm. together and made enough elemental metal in the form of silver 
that uh, that silver then coalesced in the Earth's crust in a certain way that's very rare compared to the amount of copper, and that wouldn't have happened if these neutron stars didn't collide together. Oh, and by the way, when neutron stars collide together, they produce waves of gravity. And that's very similar to what Daddy studies when he studies the origin of the universe. And then you can start talking, well, what does it mean to like reduce the value of money? And you can get into like all these different right. aspects of education, of uh, economics, of psychology. Like cheating, kids love cheating, right? I mean, they love to hear about cheating. Like somebody's cheating me? No way. Yeah. You know? then, well, how does that make parent-teacher conferences? <laughs> well, it's very you know because he's shaved down a lot of coins, so. He, He's, but you know what I mean. That's like, how it came out. Yeah. Like I know. I mean, I. Oh well, yeah. It's it's pretty bad. I had over a very renowned physicist, uh, Dr. Sylvester James Gates, Jim Gates of Brown University, that won the Medal of uh, Freedom, a Medal of Science from President Obama, uh, one of the creators of string theory. Oh, he was wow. over at our house for dinner, and my the six year old started asking him like. Do you know about the KT boundary? I'm like, he like knows more about the KT than anyone, but he was so humble and he was just like so impressed that they are like respectful, but they just want to know. Yeah. And so, so the teachers, yeah, I mean, right now, obviously the teachers, but some things they do know more than their teachers about, just about astronomy because well, I. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like that must be. Uh, it's not threatening. I don't think that they, they like it because actually I'll go into class and then I'll teach their lecture about NASA's cool. history. I'll bring in some meteorites. I'll talk about the inverse square law, but I'll do it with like a flashlight and how right. it dims. And so, but I think, but. I can't do it, you know, I'm only selfishly doing it for my own kids or any other kids in the class, of course. Right. Um, but, but I've done a lot. I've, I've done, you know, programs to over 2,000 kids in my life, starting in a graduate student career when I made the four-year-old cry, you know, thinking she was going to Mars. Uh, and, you know, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon me. I don't mean all my, all my colleagues, they're not, not all of them are suited to it, mm -hmm. just because they're, you know, they might be much more brilliant about their research and it's more productive for them to go into, to concentrate on their research. Than, than for me or in combination. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so parent-teacher uh, conferences are always kind of fun. What is something that you would want to hear a future episode like behind the scenes of this podcast? Like, I mean, the behind the scenes oh, podcast and it, and about. It, right. So I, I like to hear podcasts kind of have the sausages made. So any field uh, where people, you know, anything done well is beautiful. So knowing about, you know, how somebody translated you know, whether it's their field of expertise is venture capital or their field of expertise is a podcast or their field of expertise is writing. So I think one thing I'd be really interested in is kind of the techniques of somebody who's, um, who's done something, you know, maybe in, in a field, it could be sports, it could be entertainment or whatever, and then translated into some other field. So in the case of someone like, you know, the mentors that, that have influenced me into philanthropy or into education. So how you have multiple successes, very rare, um, reading this book, which is, you know, about 500 pages too long, but it's a good book called Principles by Ray Dalio. Ah, and he's yeah. talking about like, well, what does it mean? Like, you should listen to an expert. Let's say you get a diagnosis, God forbid, something's wrong. Um, you should go to an expert. And then that expert says something, you should go to another expert and compare the two and let them battle each other. Uh, but then what does it mean to be an expert? Not just medical. I mean, that's obvious. They have to right. be board certified, whatever. But uh, some of the interesting things that he points out is like, how do you know someone's an expert? By his definition, which I'm shortening to two, it says if they've successfully been successful three times, whatever, hedge funds in his case, or you know, written three books or whatever, or done three experiments in my case, you know, so those are people you should listen to. But I think, you know, even two, I think looking at two people, you know, you've done your two hit wonder. <laughs> it's very different than a one hit wonder. You know, yeah. a lot of people have like 
good books, you know, but the second book sucks, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, so people that have done two good things, I think those are really interesting and unusual people. As I told you earlier, maybe off, off the microphone, there's only one human being who's ever won the Nobel Prize in physics twice. And that's kind of unusual because it's self-select for like allegedly the smartest people in the whole, you know, living up on the planet. So you would think that they'd be like, you know, the, the New England Patriots. They'd win year after year after year. They're so smart. But they don't. Um, not that, you know, it's the be-all, end-all of, of uh, academic or meritocratic achievement. So I think finding someone who's really accomplished, you know, two successful fields uh, in two different fields and succeeded in both of them, that would be very interesting. You know, you know, that could be, you know, somebody just... You know, like they have on the Shark Tank sometimes. You know, the, right. so and so was in like in a sports leader, and now you know uh, she created you know Spanx, and then she did this, you know, whatever. Yeah. That you could really find people like that, but but people that are they kind of fly under the radar because they're not like someone who's just like off the charts in one field, and so everyone wants to be with them, and you know they're kind of polymaths. Yeah. They've done more than one thing, and maybe you'll find they've done more than two things. Are you familiar with Jim Collins? I know that, yeah. He's like yeah. the coach, right? He's like... He's, uh, he was... The, uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. And we actually, weirdly enough, I found out from the listening to this episode on the Tim Ferriss podcast, uh -huh. we organize our time the same way. Oh, like, really? Very oh, wow. similarly. <laughs> we're like, uh, you know, because I do mostly freelance work and yeah. like my own creative endeavors, I organize my time as input and output days. Oh, okay. And he basically organizes his time as like creative time and something else. But yes. it sort of translates to the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I remember that. Episode. And I listened to that and I was like oh, this is weird. This is like just hearing like an alternate universe <laughs> and how I do my own. I'm like, well, now I feel less crazy for doing I guess <laughs> that's it's working right. for somebody. That's right. Uh, two <laughs> um, great minds think alike. That's super helpful. And so I guess for just more context for myself, mm -hmm. what kind of stuff would you want to hear from that person? Oh, well, so I think, you know, someone who's really, you know, succeeded. I, I tend to look at people like who are employers or entrepreneurs uh, as in, in a very outsized way. Like a scientist will know something about his or her field but you don't really expect them to be, you know, kind of diversified in terms of their interests because they're very focused in communicating with people like them. Whereas someone who started a business that's maintained a payroll, that's had, you know, uh, logistics and, and has succeeded, as I said, you know, more than once, maybe in a couple different fields uh, of, of endeavor. But I don't think necessarily, you know, or it could be, you know, like they started this, like Ray Dalio. Well, let me just say, I'm mean, yeah. You get him on the show, that'll be great. You know, he'll be, my, you can tell him that he'll be following me. So he's, that, he's my you know, dad's hero. Oh, my yeah. dad would lose his mind <laughs> if I had so, Ray Dalio on the So show. here's a guy who did now, you know, like Jim Simon, you know, he's incredibly successful as in the hedge fund world. And then he wrote a great book um, and he's influenced people in that way field. And now he's doing philanthropy. Jim Simon's hasn't written a book. I'm trying to get him to write a book. So I'll say Jim Simons to be, okay. to be specific. You know, uh -huh. I, I don't have any pull or special clout that I could uh, invoke, but, but someone like him or his wife, Marilyn, uh, who's, you know, PhD in economics, you know, knows everything about the most small minutia of genotype, phenotype, different differentiation, can talk about autism, can talk about astrophysics. Uh, and, and those types of people are extremely unique. Yeah. Uh, in that they're, uh, the thing that they share in common is this relentless curiosity. You yeah. can't write a book and not be incredibly curious and organized and detailed. You know, I mean, you can self-publish and uh, that's, right. that's fine. People do that. And I have great respect for that. But, you know, or somebody could be somebody who's like, you know, like um, Andy Weir, who I also interviewed for our podcast, Into the Impossible. 
you know, he was an engineer, and then he wrote this book, you know, The Martian, and then uh, his, you know, he was very successful in engineering, thinks in a certain way, use those tools, but the thing that unites those two fields, there's nothing about writing that, I mean, I can point you to a lot of engineers who can't write, you know. Yeah, I uh, mean. <laughs> exactly. Or communicate, no shortage, typically, right? right? Exactly, like yeah. Yeah. Which is which is ironic because mostly of what my day is is communicating via written word or oral, you know, presentation or PowerPoint, you know, God forbid. But uh, <laughs> the but yeah, of my I would say yeah, two people, you know, okay. two two career success is a minimum. That that person will be interesting no matter what. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely, awesome. Thank you so much Good. for being on, Brian. I really Thank appreciate you, your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of hashtag BTS Podcast. I had such a great time with Brian. As you may have heard us discuss during the podcast, this episode was recorded on the Sunday of San Diego Comic-Con. Huge shout out to Tumblr. I had such a great time working with them at Comic-Con this year. It was great. Their team is lovely. Please do pick up Brian's book. He was a joy to speak with. His kids were a delight to be around and wrote me a very cute note in my copy of the book, which is greatly appreciated. You can find him across social media. Just look up Dr. Brian Keating. He is easy to find. Please do check out the book and follow him to stay tuned on more announcements. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Hashtag BTS Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Use the promo codes. Share those promo codes with your friends if you've already used them. You can support via Anchor. If you go to anchor.fm slash BTS podcast, you are able to become a monthly contributor or sponsor, whatever they call it. Anyways, I really, really appreciate his time. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Betherum. Thanks so much for the music, Ben. And thank you all for listening. Have a great day.